because I do believe it's a basic human right for people to explore their consciousness and that that should be available. You know, we, we talked a little bit beforehand about the importance of public education. Right. Because you get fears and anxieties that are built up in some cases by propaganda. But what we know is that MDMA in some ways is the ideal drug for post-traumatic stress disorder called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And when your fear is reduced, you can deal with it in a more effective way. So I think it's very empowering. Our, our whole approach is to empower the individual. Our goal is to make it so that you have these deep, profound experiences, and then you don't need drugs at all. Right. With the ultimate goal being to have a spiritualized population that isn't so easily manipulated by appeals to fear. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more on building optimal mental and physical performance into your routine, check out naturalstacks.com. And of course, keep listening to the OPP. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Brian Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Brian Muncy is my go-to guy. Brian Muncy is he's the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Brian Muncy's an innovator. Hey guys, Ryan Muncy here, your host of the Optimal Performance Podcast. Welcome to another episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today, spending some time with us. Um, we'll get to our guest for this week in just a moment. Uh, as you heard in the, the teaser in the intro, we are talking about exploring our consciousness. Uh, our host is Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. We have for quite a while wanted to do a psychedelics LSD um, podcast episode. This isn't quite the psychedelics and microdosing LSD episode. Um, we'll maybe do one of those in the future, but we ran into Rick at the float conference a few weeks ago, and he is an enormous wealth of knowledge. He's a man doing some amazing things uh, to treat PTSD uh, and to further uh, research in um, all sorts of fields of, of healing the human consciousness. Um, so you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Like I said, before we get to Rick, a couple of housekeeping notes. Number one, please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the show. If we read your review on the air, we will send you free Natural Stacks goodies. I'm going to read one for you right now. This is from NY Hurricane, uh, a podcast designed to make you flourish. This is a long one, so I'm going to skim a few of the highlights. Recently discovered the Optimal Performance Podcast, immediately fell in love with it. Uh, been using a majority of Natural Stacks products for over a year. Um, not sure how I missed this podcast, but it's truly a game changer. Ryan Muncy has a perfect voice and knowledge for this kind of podcast. The guests on the show are exactly what we slash you need. If you are um, looking to uh, pick up a few tips. Um, so thank you so much, Ryan and the Natural Stacks team for this podcast and great products. There's more to that one if you guys want to go read that review. But NY Hurricane, thank you so much. We will reach out to you and send you some free Natural Stacks products of your choice. For you guys listening... Um, share the OPP with anybody that you know who will benefit from the things that we're doing, the things that we're talking about. This episode in particular will be full of stuff that, that can help everyone uh, improve and live optimal. Um, and of course, 
go to naturalstacks.com. You guys will be able to see the blog post with this, the video of Rick, and all of the links and resources. Uh, as you're going to hear in this, Rick talks about a lot of different studies and a lot of different things that you may want to pursue. I've already linked to all those on the blog post, so you guys enjoy that. And without further ado, here's Rick. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, Ryan, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. So we uh, have for a long time wanted to do an episode on uh, psychedelics and the use of microdosing with psychedelics for cognitive enhancement, nootropic purposes. Uh, I got to run into you at the float conference a few weeks ago and it was just, you know, it was this aha moment of <laughs> here's our guy, um, you know, because this is a sensitive topic and it's one that yeah. Yeah. we, we wanted the right guest. We didn't want just some, some, some dude who liked to get, you know, trippy and wanted to talk about mushrooms and, 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 and you know, f- other forms of psychedelics. So, you know, with, with you and, you know, we'll go over your bio and I mean, it's, Okay. You're definitely the, the right guy for us to have this conversation. Um, you know, you, you, if for people who don't know you or not familiar with you, um, guys, Rick is the founder and the executive director of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a nonprofit research and educational group that Rick started in 1986. Is that right, Rick? 30 years ago. 30, yep. 30 years. You have been helping people uh, through, uh, you've been using psychedelics and, and, and using them as an adjunctive uh, tool to help with. Uh, well, um, that's been the goal for 30 years, but it took us a long time. Actually, from 1986 till 1992, it took us that long that isn't actually that long, six years, to start the first study with MDMA okay. for um, a safety study. And then it took us till 2004 in the United States, so 18 years, for us to start the first study in patients with PTSD. And now we've just finished um, 16 years because we, we actually started that effort in 2000 and started a study in Spain in 2000 for PTSD. Wow. So we've just finished 16 years of what are called phase two pilot studies. Okay. With MDMA for post-traumatic stress, and we've just submitted it to the FDA about the move to phase three. So, I mean, there's just the perseverance that you have to have, the dedication that you have to have to to whatever your passion is to to fight that yeah. uphill battle for so long is is uh, you know that's inspirational, regardless of, of what niche yeah. or, or field that's in. Um, you know, so so again, just to kind of build your credibility with with our, yeah. our audience who may not be aware of you, I mean, you're a guy who has a PhD in public policy from you know the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, you know, so it's, again, this is why I, 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 I want to emphasize, yeah, that, I mean, you are legit. You're not just some dude who, you know, <laughs> likes to sit in his basement and stare at black lights and, you know, eat mushrooms. <laughs> not that, right. that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but our guests have a standard for, for, uh, you know, our listeners have a standard for the, the guests and experts that we bring onto the show. So, um, so, Rick, tell us. Uh, oh, well, let me just add to balance that out. So, on the one hand, that's about uh, change in the world. So, I've got the master's and the PhD from the Kennedy School, mm-hmm. but I've also trained with Stanislav Grof and Christina Grof in the holotropic breath work. Mm-hmm. And Stan's the world's leading LSD researcher and therapist. He's 85 years old now. And I have an undergraduate degree in transpersonal psychology and psychedelic psychotherapy research. So on the one hand, I combine training in how to be a psychedelic therapist, and then the other, how to 
be a therapist for sick public policy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think I think the two kind of go hand in hand, right? I mean, there is some some public policy illness around some of the stuff that that you guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, and even this podcast, you know, we we talked a little bit beforehand about the importance of public education. Right. Because you get fears and anxieties that are built up in some cases by propaganda and other cases by situations that people know about. And that kind of sort of repository of the, the collection of fears and anxieties and hopes of the public translates into public policy. So that's why I think it's so important what you're doing here with your podcast and why I'm so glad to participate. Well, I think the feeling is mutual. We're really happy to have you here. So, so let's jump in. I know you've got a hard stop. It's it's PTA night for you. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and I have only I have three kids, and only one of them <laughs> is still at home. She's a senior in high school, and you know I've done it a million times, but tonight is the uh, go to school night. And you know, it. I guess the important point there is that you can be totally into psychedelics and marijuana and drugs, and still be a family guy. And you know, oh, yeah. Not, I was, or the other. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, like, do you do you are, are there negative repercussions that, that your kids have to face um because of people in the community knowing what you do? <laughs> um well I'll say this. Um sometimes uh, my daughter has these says that these cute guys in her class contact her, but it's because they want to <laughs> be introduced to me. <laughs> And they've about maps or something. So that's not so good for her. The, the, the high um, school's having a huge party Friday night. Can your dad help us? <laughs> not so uh, so much like that. But some then my daughter in college had friends like, oh, I want to do psychedelic research. Introduce me to your dad. So uh, let's let's dive in and tell us, you know, what's what's got you really excited about the research that you're doing now? Well, what's tremendously exciting to me is that the research that has been so marginalized, so suppressed for so long, so demonized and stigmatized, is now becoming more widely accepted. And the best example, and I'm not sure how your uh, listeners could get this, but there was an article um, July 14th in a scientific journal called Cell. Um, I could send it to you if there's some way you yep. could post it or something. Yeah. So, and that's something that because I'm recording the show notes separately um, or the intro, I will I do a show notes, and our, our audience uh, knows. You guys listening, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post for this, and we'll put all the links and resources oh, for you guys great. to go click on. So, anything that you mention, Rick, just mention it, and uh, and then you can send it to me later, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay. Terrific. Because. This article in the journal Cell, which is you know a very highly reputable scientific journal, mm-hmm. it's about MDMA as a probe for social behaviors, mm-hmm. and it's written by people at Stanford in the neuroscience department at Stanford, um, which is you know despite the fact that it's in California is somewhat of a conservative place, and the last two sentences of this article are something that I could have written myself. The article is called MDMA as a probe and treatment for social behaviors. But here's how the article ends. And this is just, was so gratifying for me to see this. It says, quote, the world's populations need more compassion and empathy for one another. The study of MDMA provides one small but potentially important step towards reaching that goal. 
So this is neuroscience researchers. They're not social change activists. They're not opponents of the drug war. And they're talking not just about the use of MDMA in therapy, but about generally helping us understand compassion and empathy. Right. It's fantastic. And then um, at Burning Man, which, you know, on the one hand, you think is this, you know, semi-countercultural phenomena. So, you know, I was just at Burning Man. And who should I meet but uh, a young postdoc from Yale, Department of Psychiatry. And he told me that they're going to be doing a study with MDMA for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in vets. It's a mechanism of action study. It's going to be taking uh, vets with PTSD, giving them MDMA, sticking them in an fMRI scanner, mm -hmm. and doing all sorts of biological measurements as well. And they got independent funding. So it's a study of MDMA for PTSD in vets, but MAPS is not funding it. The world is sort of saying there's something going on here. And again, this is Yale. Before that was Stanford. You know, it's not, you know, as you say, hippies in their best basement. Right. It's, I mean, people mainstream. People are starting to catch on and it is starting to become kind of uh, accepted uh, as legitimate science, which is, is great because, I mean, I think people familiar with the original intent of, of LSD and, and, and things along those lines was, you know, that it was supposed to be something other than, you know, what it has become. Yeah. And, and what it has become um, is a limited set of what it can become. Um, I don't think that it should be criminalized for non-medical use. Um, I think it can be powerfully effective in group bonding. And if just look at the whole history of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, th I think that that's legitimate. And look at the, psych the use of psychedelics at festivals. Um, mm -hmm. What's dangerous about that is that, you know, people, if you take these drugs just for fun and more difficult experiences come up, then people are often unprepared for that. And they try to suppress the difficult experiences and they get into trouble. And, and that's where we have this whole Zendo project that we call it, which is for providing psychedelic harm reduction services mm -hmm. at festivals like Burning Man, Boom Festival in Portugal, Envision, um, Symbiosis, all, all these festivals. So we try to support people through difficult stuff. But I think the other part about these drugs as medicines, um, the prohibitions on the research that have existed for decades but have now vanished, um, now we have the best chance in 50 years to make psychedelics into medicines as adjuncts to psychotherapy. Well, it's a tremendously exciting time. Yeah, and, and you mentioned with Burning Man. I mean, you were there, uh, obviously, because it's, it's, it's a scene where, you know, that stuff is accepted. But you were there to, to provide support and, and help for people, right? I mean, that was the, the We purpose. had, uh, yes, we, we had um, over 200 volunteers. And during the course of the week, we have two separate facilities. We ended up treating, uh, treating supporting, helping mm -hmm. uh, 430 guests. Wow came in and uh, it was just incredibly gratifying for the volunteers to help people. And, um, you know, four of the five board of directors of maps were at Burning Man this year. Nice. And a lot of our funders are there, uh, but they're from all elements of society. It's, it's not really this, um, image that you have of the counterculture. Maybe that's the way it was in Haight-Ashbury in the, you know, the sixties, but now Burning Man, it's, it's people from all over the world, from all levels of society. Um, and it's, um, people are trying to think of it as an innovative model for the future. And yeah. we want psychedelic harm reduction to be a part of it because I do believe it's a basic human right for people to explore their consciousness and that that should be available. 
to adults, we should be able to create a society that's more supportive of that. Yeah. And I think that was, that was the common thread at, at float conference. And I think that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation on, on our podcast, because, you know, we are huge proponents of exploring our consciousness. And I would agree with you that I think as humans, consenting adults, we should be able to explore our consciousness, um, you know, in, in ways that are not harmful to ourselves or to others, uh, if, if that's how it's going to be done. Um, so let's, let's talk about, um, how things like MDMA are, are actually able to facilitate the healing process, you know, in the, in the studies and in the treatments that you guys have done, because I thought that was really fascinating to hear. Okay. Well, um, MDMA is one of the most well-studied drugs in the world. This even includes drugs that are already approved as medicines. Uh, there's been tens of millions of people have taken MDMA. If people go into Medline or PubMed, it's the repository of the world's scientific uh, biomedical literature, mm -hmm. and you put in MDMA or ecstasy, there's over 5,000 scientific papers. And we estimate that that's uh, well in excess of $300 million has been spent so far trying to understand the abuse liability of MDMA, what does it do, the pharmacokinetics, all sorts of studies have been funded by governments over the world, mostly trying to find out the risks. But some have been into mechanisms of action, and a few, which are our studies, have been into therapeutic potentials. And eventually, as I said, there'll be other studies funded by others also looking at therapeutic potentials. But what, what we know is that MDMA, in some ways, is the ideal drug for post-traumatic stress disorder. People who have post-traumatic stress disorder often you know, have a lack of trust of other people because their trust has been violated. They feel isolated and alone. Um, MDMA stimulates hormones oxytocin and prolactin which relate to nursing and bonding, and, um, and they help contribute to the sense of closeness that people have and empathy. MDMA has this remarkable property of reducing brain activity in the fear-generating part of the brain, in the uh, left amygdala. So what happens is that the part of your brain that reacts to fearful thoughts and images and memories um, is quieted down. And MDMA enhances activity in the frontal cortex, where we put memories in storage, where we put them in context mm -hmm. and place them in the past. So what basically happens with PTSD is people have had some, either a complex PTSD, a series of traumatic incidents like childhood sexual abuse repeatedly, or they have been raped or assaulted or been in a war um, or, you know, auto accidents or operations or any number of different things can cause this emotional reaction to what happened. It just doesn't get digested, right. but it never disappears either. So it's always hovering as if it's about to reoccur okay. and people then end up very, very stressed. They don't sleep. They, uh, they avoid things that remind them of the trauma. They numb themselves. Uh, emotional numbing, so they're not so re, um, reactive to it, or else they're hyper-reactive to things. And then people get stuck on this kind of loop of this mm -hmm. uh, 
incident, these fears replaying themselves. So what MDMA does is it breaks the tape loop by reducing the fear so that people can look at the trauma that was too powerful for them, too frightening when it happened, mm -hmm. but under the influence of MDMA and being in a safe place. So again, that's a little bit of a distinction or a big distinction between a therapeutic setting and a recreational setting like Burning Man. In a therapeutic setting, we have a male-female co-therapist team, mm -hmm. and they're with people for eight hours of the MDMA session. They're and, actually with and, people and, for uh, 40 hours of therapy. Right. That's what I was going to point out is what you had said was that the MDMA is not actually administered in that first session that they have with the therapist, right? There's, there's a rapport that's built between the patient and the therapist first. Yes, exactly. There's, well, that's called the therapeutic alliance. Mm -hmm. And the research and psychotherapy outcome studies have demonstrated that the most important predictor of whether somebody is going to get better in psychotherapy is this therapeutic alliance, the sense of safety and trust created in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's more important than the school of psychotherapy that people are delivering. Right. There is cognitive behavioral or right. any kind of um, assault therapy. So, so our, our, our model is three and a half month treatment process. Now these are for chronic treatment resistant PTSD. Right. And there's more or less weekly non-drug psychotherapy sessions throughout this. Mm -hmm. And there's three of them before the first MDMA session. So we've had time mm -hmm. to build up the therapeutic alliance for people to get to know each other. Then there's the first MDMA session that lasts eight hours with a male female team. People spend the night in the treatment center. Uh, a night attendant comes in just to so they're, they're not alone or in case they need anything. And then the next day, there's um, 90 minutes to, to several hours of integrative psychotherapy, reviewing what happened before. Then they go home. Uh, they can't drive themselves. Somebody comes and takes them home. And then we call them every day on the phone for a week just to check in and see how they're doing. And then they restart the weekly non-drug psychotherapy, more or less. And then three to five weeks after the first MDMA session is the second. And then that process repeats itself. And then three to five weeks after the second MDMA session is the third one. And then two months after that is the what's called the primary outcome measure. And then one year after the last MDMA session is our long-term follow-up. There's so much that you guys have built into to all of that, including every single session that just sets the, the patient up for success. I mean, we know, you know, one of the downsides to using uh, MDMA or ecstasy or any of these psychedelics is that that neurotransmitter depletion the day after. And I know you talked about this at the float conference. And again, yeah. you just mentioned it um, in that answer where, you know, you have that next day built in as a buffer where that, that patient is kind of recovering. You, you do an integrative uh, counseling session so that they can talk through th what happened in that eight hour session. And I think I made a note when you spoke in, in at the float conference, and this is something I want to point out because I think it's, it, it's a very important part of this is that the MDMA gives the person a safe place to recall and reprint or change that memory. So can you elaborate on, on what, what's going on there? Yeah, the, the formal term is called memory reconsolidation. And actually even more so, it's called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And what, what's going on there is that memories are stored all over the brain, you know, the auditory memories, the visual memories, the, uh, mm -hmm. the different kind of memories are all from a same incident can be stored in multiple places. Okay. And then 
the memories get consolidated when you remember them. And it used to be thought of as like uh, memories, like taking a book off the shelf Mm -hmm. and you read the book and then you stick the book back. But what we know now about memory is that it's not quite that way. It's like you take the book off the shelf, but then you have to actually reprint the book. And that is both good and bad. That explains how memory changes over time, which, uh, you know, we want to remember things as they really were. So that, that kind of, you know, but on the other hand, that gives a chance for healing from traumatic memories so that when the traumatic memories occurred, you've got the incident, the memory for what happened, but then you also have the emotional tone, which is overlaid on it, which is this memory of fear. So the, the basic understanding that we have now of mechanisms of action is that when somebody recalls a traumatic memory under the influence of MDMA, and, and another way to say it is when they're feeling safe and secure mm-hmm. um, and their fear is reduced, when they remember it that way, they can process it. Mm-hmm. They can separate out what is happening now from what happened in the past. And once they've processed it, we find that people's memory for what happened actually increases. So MDMA is a memory enhancer. For difficult memories. Nice. So you have a better grasp of what really happened. And then when you reconsolidate the memory, when you move to store it, and, and as you start thinking of other things, what's happening is that the memory of the incident is being stored, but the emotional tone to it is what you're feeling at that moment, that sense of peacefulness and the fact that it was in the past rather than in the present. So that reconsolidation process is now the key. And, and what that means in some ways is that the day after MDMA in terms of long-term change is even more important than the MDMA day itself. Right, right. And that's why we really encourage people to think about MDMA as a two-day experience, not to rush into action and to be reflective and quiet about what happened and, and really give yourself the, the gift of time, of you know, yeah. I mean, that's what the flow tanks are about, right? right. It's about the right. gift of time by yourself to rest, yep. reflect, and think. And, and that's one of the um, things that we are, you know, often overlooking to give ourselves that gift. Well, and that, that actually leads right into one of the other – I highlighted I – had, I had so many notes from what you said, and, and <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to distill it down into, you know, what we were going to cover on this podcast so that it would be – both informative but also actionable for for our listeners and you know one of the things that I, I actually highlighted was that you said you know the the length of time that we spend in that altered state is in, incredibly crucial and that for for the people that you have been treating um, you know that the longer battles need more time uh, to process and, and gives you more time allows you more time to deal with that issue yeah we find actually to to be clear to, to the listeners that our treatment process involves an initial dose of MDMA. Um, you know, we've experimented with all different doses. Uh, the way we're going to do phase three is going to be um, of the three sessions, the first one is going to be 70 milligrams. So everybody's going to get that. And that's, and a, that's actually two smaller hours, than like recreational doses, right? 
It is. And, it, you know, I personally don't like 75 milligrams. So I for, feel halfway there, halfway not. For know? people, yeah, for people who may not be familiar with, with what a recreational dose amounts to, I mean, can you kind of list, because I know you, you talked about uh, a couple of different numbers when, when yeah. you spoke. Um, for, for those uh, people that, that are manufacturing MDMA that, that decide to be full and generous, um, usually it's 125 milligrams. You know, I'd say most of it um, comes in as 100 milligrams or less. Um, but we feel like a full recreational dose is around 125 milligrams. It doesn't matter that much about body weight. It's more about, um, you know, people's context, their emotional attitude towards it, and then, you know, w where they're doing it and, mm -hmm. you know, if they're doing it by themselves or not. But what we found is that, so, so in the therapy, between one and a half to two and a half hours, we give half the initial dose. And that's to extend as a plateau that kind of experience that's happening, just in order to make it longer and right. to give more time for people to process it. And what we find is that um, sometimes in the f five, six, seven, eight hours near the end of it, after they've been through this really profound, powerful experience, that that's where they make a lot of the most important connections and a lot of growth is happening in the tail end of these experiences. So we don't try to rush it. Right. We, we recognize that this is not a model that traditional psychiatrists and psychotherapists will easily adopt. Right. You know, their model is, you know, 50 minute hour at once a week or several times a week or something like that. So this is eight hours. Um, in one day, not just with one therapist, but with two, we find that the male female team is incredibly helpful for people as they get into um, emotionally sensitive states, you know, they can sort of regress uh, to childhood states to see a successful, well functioning male female team can be very um, encouraging to people. It also gives uh, people a sense of safety, particularly if they're, you know, women who've been sexually abused to have a male therapist might not be as comfortable, but if it's a male-female team. So we do say that um, we want it to last eight hours. You know, it, it could be done in a shorter amount of time. And there will be people that are trying to figure out how do you, do you turn MDMA into uh, something that's more or less fits the normal model. And so there, there are ways to do that where, you know, people come to your office, they take the MDMA. The MDMA doesn't it takes about an hour for it to be fully effective. So you could have people sit in a waiting room for an hour. Then you could see them for two hours. This is actually work that was done in the eighties. People did do it like this wow. um, back when it was legal. Um, and they had MDMA therapy sessions. So you would have, um, you know, from hour one, you know, you're waiting, you're in the waiting room. You're not really meeting with the therapist. Hour two and hour three, you're with the therapist. And then hour four and five, you're in a, you know, a room that more or less, again, on your own, like a waiting room to sort of process, and then somebody can come and take you home. So that really it only sees the therapist for two hours. So that's pretty effective. But we find that for people who are highly traumatized, we work um, with moderate to severe PTSD is what we worked with PTSD in phase two, which and treatment resistant, people who have failed on other treatments. Um, in phase three studies, we're proposing to work with severe PTSD or more, you know, to extreme. So in these kind of situations, a lot of times when people come up against what they're scared of initially, when the MDMA is at its strongest, 
it's still really, really hard for them to do that. And then as the MDMA starts to fade, people often become even more able to process and to deal with things. So, you know, we, we do say that it's very important that it's an eight-hour session. And then, you know, we don't give uh, 5-HTP or any kind of supplements or nutritional support to replenish neurotransmitters. What we say instead is that people should rest. And that for the healing of trauma, that kind of resting where you think about it in a more peaceful way, you're no longer affected in the same way by the MDMA, but there's these lingering, you know, after effects that make you a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more slow to launch your typical reactions. That's very, very important, crucial time for the therapy. So, I mean, that almost sounds like the, the state that a lot of people would be in post-float as well. Is that something that you have found or, or would suggest for people coming out of a float also? Um, I'm sure it's not quite as profound of, a, of an experience, uh, yeah, but, well, but could I still think, be beneficial. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, that when you come out of a float, and I had a float tank at my house and was able to use it quite a lot. Um, this is a while ago. I don't have one now, but, um, I wish I did. Um, but I think in general, when you come out of a float, of course you got a shower. Um, but I think that, that we're just in general too, um, busy in our lives and having time to reflect after the float. I mean, obviously when you're floating, you don't have any pencil, pencil and paper or anything like that, or no tape recorder or no phone. So I, I think the same way that people um, wake up in the morning and think about their dreams, you know, to the extent that you can give a little time to your dreams in the morning and reflect on that, that gives you like a whole lot more value to your whole life because all that time at night when you're dreaming, you know, for most of us and now even for me, most of the time, it's just it's gone. The dreams are gone because you rush out of bed, the alarm rings, you got to be somewhere, you sleep as long as possible, and then you race. So giving yourself time after dreaming, I found when I was doing it was just tremendously enriching. And the same is true for float tanks, and the same is true for psychedelic sessions. I mean, really what we're trying to do is, uh, and I'd say this is the fundamental distinction between recreational use, uh, which you know politicians are now telling me to call adult use rather than recreational use. <laughs> Um, you know, and therapeutic use is that recreational use, people are doing it more for the experience itself. Right. And therapeutic use, the experience is just a doorway to try to change the long term. It's for what you bring back from the experience mm-hmm. and how that changes your daily life. And so I think that's the crucial distinction. And um, it's great to have these recreational adult experiences, but the more that we can reflect on them, um, the more that it's like, uh, you know, um, digging up a diamond, you know, in a diamond mine. But then what have you got? You know, you still have to do polishing the diamond. So the, this integrative work is like polishing the diamond that you dug up, you know, during the exploratory float or psychedelic session. I like that. I like that. So, I mean, essentially you're saying that there's a way to, you know, if you were going to use for adult use, there's a way to get more out of it by slowing down afterwards and, and kind of reflecting. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that um, Stan Groff and Christina Groff have done in their holotropic breathwork workshops, mm-hmm. 
holotropic breathwork meaning just hyperventilation and then letting feelings flow out is they have people do some drawings afterwards. So nonverbal ways to try to think about and integrate it. Okay. Well, something else that you said that, that I had written down from your notes was that, you know, we can, we can use these tools, whether it's a float tank or, or MDMA or, or LSD, whatever it might be, it's a tool that can help us clear the obstructions, um, but we have to heal ourselves. Yes. I really loved that. And I think that's, that's kind of what you're getting at with, with these last couple of statements. Well, thank you. That, that gives me a chance to say a little bit about what our treatment method is. And so for people that are interested, it's called the treatment manual. That describes how we think the therapist should be interacting with the, um, the patient, the PTSD patient, or we also have studies with people with anxiety about life-threatening illnesses, um, autistic adults with social anxiety. Uh, we're doing a couples therapy study now where one member of the couple has PTSD. Um, but what, what we're basically um, trying to get across is that we believe that there is an inner healer of the psyche. So, you know, the example that I used is, you know, you have a cut and, and there can be, um, you know, Michael Midhofer, who's our lead psychiatrist, used to be an emergency room physician. And so he described people that come in on motorcycle accidents and they've got all these scrapes and pebbles and stuff in their in their body. And so he cleans the wound, he washes the wound, he dresses the wound, but he doesn't heal it. People heal it themselves. Our body has this wisdom. And it, it seems from a lot of converging lines of evidence that our, our psyche has a similar self-healing process. And so in the therapeutic method that we describe in the treatment manual that's on the MAPS website under research, menu bar, and then you just go to MDMA, and then under that, you'll find the treatment manual. We, we call it non-directive. We, we don't use the word guide. We're not the guide. I mean, I think that's a very common term, you know, who's going to be your guide for the sessions. But that implies that somehow the guide knows where you need to go. Right. So you, which we, we don't. You know where you need to go. And You're, and you're acting got, less like a guide and more like a guardian or or bodyguard. Exactly, exactly. exactly. We're more um, of a somebody who accompanies them, creates a safe space, but they have to do the work too. So it, it's th this idea is basically that the extreme of shamanism is that the shaman takes the drug and then heals you. The shaman goes into alternate uh, state of consciousness, and but then it's like a surgeon in a sense. You know, you're not healing yourself. So when it comes to the psyche, what we're trying to do is help people build their own tools to heal themselves. The same way that in float tanks, mm -hmm. that people go in the tank, they have to be listening to their own chatter. They have to be quieting themselves. So where we are in therapy is we're not the guide. We don't know where people need to go. We try to support what's emerging in whatever order it emerges. And different people have different orders. So some people who've been traumatized and that's a major issue in their lives and it limits their functions, a lot of times they'll go straight to the trauma and they'll start talking about that. Mm -hmm. But other times people will go to uh, pleasant experiences that they have, like they're building up their strengths to then deal with the trauma. Or they talk about something completely different, like, you know, that's a, a veteran and you think he's going to talk about war-related trauma and then he starts talking about something happening to him when he was a child. Mm -hmm. So there's layers and layers of trauma built on top of each other. And 
people's psyche has that wisdom about what they need to deal with next. And we try to support that process. We don't try to, you know, roughly of the eight hours, roughly half of it is people listening to music with their eyes closed and having their own inner experience. And it's often very poetic in terms of imagery and stories. We try to avoid words with lyrics, songs with lyrics, mm-hmm. right. because we don't want to program people right. in that and the other half, more or less, is dialogue with the therapists. So people go inside, inside and then they come back out in, in all different orders. Um, you know, there was one um, situation back in 2009. One of the main treatments for PTSD is called prolonged exposure. The idea is that you repeat the trauma over and over, and eventually you get desensitized to it. Right. And it helps some people, but it's very re-traumatizing. And the woman who developed that was um, in her 70s, isn't from the psychedelic 60s and thinks MDMA is the same thing as LSD. And she was just very scared about it and said, you know, why do you need something so drastic, you know, like dynamite in the brain? You know, maybe you should use uh, virtual reality. And at the conference, there was somebody there who'd been funded by the Department of Defense to do virtual reality research for PTSD, where they create these combat environments. But, you know, you can always take it off or look away or... You know, and so she said, go talk to him about virtual reality as a, a tool for PTSD. So I, I went to him and I said, um, Skip Rizzo is his name. And I said, you know, um, I've been in, asked to speak to you. I'm curious what you think. You know, I'm, we're involved with MDMA research and I'm wondering what you think about virtual reality. And he, he laughed and he said, if you have MDMA, you don't need virtual reality <laughs> Be- because your own brain has exactly what happened to you. And when your fear is reduced, you can deal with it in a more effective way. So I think it's very empowering. Our, our whole approach is to empower the individual that we're not the healers. We're not the, um, the guides. They are. And we try to support them as best we can. I like that. Uh, so, Rick, a lot of our podcasts, we really try to provide as much action um, and, and take-home tips as we can. And... I know your research and what you do is is really fascinating, and it's something worth sharing and spreading. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that a lot of our members. Well, I don't know if it's unfortunate. Fortunately, uh, <laughs> a lot of our members don't have P, listeners don't have PTSD. Fortunately, um, yeah. So, but you know, well, what what would be your action tips um, for for folks? Like, you know, look, we may not all have PTSD, but but none of us have it all figured out, or we don't have it all together. We all have issues, demons, whatever you want to call them. What would be your advice uh, for us uh, to better yeah. heal ourselves, deal with that stuff? What can we do on a uh, on a you know uh, an actionable level for for us? Well, how how many of your listeners would you say are involved in the float community? Uh, I would say that most of our, I would say a hundred percent of our regular listeners are familiar with floating. I don't know that a hundred percent have floated, uh, but we've had, we've had several float tank owners, um, or, or facility owners on the show before. So, so ah. the idea of floating is familiar to, to most of our listeners. Okay. Um, well, I think that this kind of, um, float experience you know, is obviously legal. And it's, it's something that I think people can get into and um, 
can feel some of that quiet and inner peacefulness that you know you can touch on what MDMA does by being in the float tank because you can totally relax. You will not sink and you don't have to support your body in any way. Um, so that's one thing. And then, you know, you started talking about microdosing at the very beginning. So here we sort of cross the line from legal to illegal. But I think that, um, you know, the, the, the tank or just in general, um, little um, aids towards being more open can be very helpful. You don't need full doses of things to really get a sense to move in a certain direction uh, and to be more open and more creative and more open hearted. Uh, I would say holotropic breath work. If they could listen, if your listeners could look around for holotropic breath work. Um, I'll see. I'll see if we can get those guys on on the show, and, and we'll do oh. a whole show on on holotropic uh, breath work. Um, if, at, the, at the very least, I'll put a link in the show notes so so people can uh, our listeners can go to those uh, the site and see more about that. But you know, so you, so you mentioned microdosing. Is there? Um, I think we're familiar with the idea that that LSD could be used as a nootropic uh, if used in microdosing. Is that something that you would agree with? Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we're not studying that yet. We're thinking about studying that because we're more focused on the full psychedelic experience to right. have this catharsis and make it so that uh, people don't need drugs. So in, even though that we're talking about drug assisted, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, our goal is not like big pharma, which is to get you to take a daily drug for the rest of your life. Our goal is to make it so that you have these deep, profound experiences, and then you don't need drugs at all. Right. So right. the idea of microdosing kind of goes, you know, it, it's more of like a daily, like a vitamin, you could even say. And so, so that's okay. Okay. Uh, and, and so I, I think that there is a lot of openness that people can get with microdosing. I think it's a completely legitimate situation. Um, I do think, though, that um, occasionally punctuating it with a full dose experience mm -hmm. is probably, you know, a really good way to do it. Um, I think the other things that um, your listeners could do, there's, um, I'll just recommend a tremendous uh, book that for those that are, are thinking about um, you know, psychotherapy with psychedelics. Uh, the book is called The Secret Chief Revealed. And they can get it for free on the MAPS website. We publish it if they want to buy a hard copy. But it, we also put the electronic copy up there for free. So The Secret Chief um, is about is a man named Leo Zeff. And he was the one that the Shulgans, who really helped bring out MDMA, um, he was, they were the, Ann and Sasha Shulgan were synthesizing, Sasha Shulgan synthesizing different, drugs and then testing them out with a small group and those that he thought had therapeutic potential would go out to this group of therapists and leo was the head of that group of therapists so the secret chief revealed is about a variety of different psychedelics and how they can be used in psychotherapy and how this underground psychedelic therapy movement was created mm -hmm. and i think it's very instructive and it's it's a free book and so i think people might find that of, of interest um I, I think the for those that are interested, it's a bit late now for this year at Burning Man, but through our psychedelic harm reduction program, the Zendo project, we offer trainings for people. 
and how to help other people through difficult psychedelic experiences. Of course, the training is the same, how to help yourself in you know, <laughs> a productive psychedelic experience or how to help others. Uh, so it's very similar principles for therapy or for psychedelic harm reduction. So um, you could go onto the MAPS website and check out Zendo Project, and you can find out when we're doing trainings in different places. People could come to do that. We're going to be doing Envision in Costa Rica, for those of your listeners that love to travel. I think that's February or so of 2017. This will be our fifth year down there in Costa Rica helping them do that. Nice. Um, I think there's a lot of things that people can do, but one of the most important is uh, to educate themselves mm -hmm. as much as they can. So we have all of our protocols are on the website. We keep a really good archive of the media articles. You know, we'll let people know about this podcast also and create an archive about that. So if people go to Maps and the Media on the website, um, th there's an enormous wealth of information there. And we also have, you know, summarized the world scientific literature on MDMA in what's called the Investigator's Brochure. So if people really want to get deep into the science of MDMA, they could read that. Um, and then we also suggest to people that we look at social change movements of the past and how they succeeded. And one of the most dramatic examples is gay marriage and gay rights. And that succeeded because people who were gay had the courage to identify themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit um, following that model that I feel the psychedelic community needs to do the same, needs to come out. Yep. And so we, we have this program called uh, Global Psychedelic Dinners. Yep. This, this, was, this whole thread right here is going to be my very next question. So if you, oh, can see, if, okay. if you guys can see me on video, this is why I'm smiling because <laughs> I, I actually had a note about this. I love it. So, so yeah, go ahead, go ahead and continue with that, Rick. Okay. Well, at, at the, what, what we are encouraging people to do, and, and we've developed all sorts of uh, printed, printed materials that are up on the web that people could use, but the idea is that um, people have a dinner. Somebody decides, I'm going to cook dinner for 30 people or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, spaghetti, doesn't need to be anything fancy. And you just invite a bunch of people over. And then the purpose of the dinner is for people to go around in, in the, whatever order they want to. You could do it in a circle or popcorn style, whatever. And people share stories of what psychedelics have meant to them. It could be positive. It could be negative. It could be, you know, somebody they watch that had a psychedelic. But people share stories with each other. And it's incredibly inspiring to hear these stories. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of their, each person, if they want to donate, we're trying to uh, purchase. We are purchasing legally a one kilogram of medical grade MDMA. And that's... Um, I had one kilogram made in 1985 by Dave Nichols at Purdue University, and he, he charged $4,000 for a kilogram, and he got a really good yield. He got like 1.2 or 1.3 kilograms. We have 960 grams left, and it's the same MDMA that we use now 31 years later in our research. Really? It's, wow. it's among the world's purest, but it doesn't have all the paperwork. It wasn't done in the procedures that the FDA accepts as medical grade. So we're having one kilogram made now, and it's costing us $400,000, $50 for a 125-milligram dose. But th that, that's only this first batch. It'll get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But what we're saying for these global psychedelic dinners is if people want to donate to help us purchase, they can be participating in a legal drug deal <laughs> and help so us get medical grade MDMA. What are you, you going to do with the 900 grams that, uh, that remain from the original? 
Well, okay, if any of your listeners are uh, in a scientific uh, setting and they want to do research, we're offering to give it away. So really? we are going to give away DEA-licensed, FDA-approved MDMA to researchers if they want it. Because once we start phase three, we cannot use this MDMA. We can still use it for phase two, phase one, or animal studies or lab studies. But we'll have an enormous amount of MDMA that, unfortunately, we can't just distribute to ourselves and take it. At, <laughs> you know, we have to actually—it's all DEA tracked, and there's you know a um, tracking I, system for every molecule, yeah. practically. But I, we I were, think I know how we're going to uh, promote this podcast. Now we'll just say, <laughs> "Do you want free MDMA? Click here." <laughs> um, we would very much be interested in giving it to researchers who awesome. want to do any kind of study with it. That's really cool. Uh, other than that, you know, it, it's already lasted 31 years. It'll last for a lot, lot longer. Um, for people that want to look at uh, hosting a global psychedelic dinner, just go to psychedelic dinners on the MAPS yep. website. Um, it's, it's tremendous for community building and also for empowering people to speak out and sort of less supported, friendly settings to try yeah. to engage others in discussions. I, I think that the, the idea of the psychedelic dinner is is fascinating. I think it's a great thing. It's a really, it, it, it gives an action plan, um, you know, to say, like like you mentioned with, with policy change for other policies, like, you know, I, I had a note that, that you said something, legalization follows medicalization. Yes, so, yes. So, yeah. you know, oh, they, they, listening pretty closely. I, 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 it's all the nootropics. <laughs> so, so with, with, you know, you, you use the, uh, the, the parallel to, to gay marriage and, you know, the, it took a few brave souls in the beginning to, to come out and, and start talking about this thing to, to have that discussion. And, you know, it, it has, it has certainly not been resolved, but there's been a lot of progress made in that area. Um, you know, and, and a similar line uh, for the medicalization and, and in some states legalization or at least decriminalization of marijuana. So is that that's probably the same path that psychedelics are going to have to take, right? I think so. I, I think that what we see from medical marijuana and marijuana legalization is that in 1996 was the first medical marijuana states, California and Arizona. So now it's 20 years later, and people have seen that uh, people that they didn't normally associate with marijuana um, have used it for pain, have used it for other things. It's not just young hippies or older hippies now or aging baby boomers. There's all sorts of people that are using it for all sorts of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And then also you get the dispensaries. So what, we, what we've learned is that, um, ironically, marijuana decrim in a state leads to marijuana legalization less so than medical marijuana. You'd think decrim, which would, which is about criminal status, you know, would, would lead more towards uh, legalization and build more support for it. But right. medical marijuana is the one because you have medical marijuana dispensaries and people can see that this is happening. It's not surrounded by people with machine guns. It's not, right. you know, images of prohibition in the thirties with alcohol <laughs> in the twenties. It's right. It normalizes it, and more importantly, people hear stories of those that have used marijuana for medicine, and they've been exposed to so much propaganda and so much misinformation that people don't know what to believe, but they believe word of mouth. So it's taken 20 years for us, 
uh, just a couple weeks ago, the DEA finally announced that they're going to end the federal monopoly on the supply of marijuana for research. Wow. We've been working on that since 1999. That's what's blocked marijuana from becoming a medicine through the FDA. So it's taken 20 years of that. And also now we have multiple uh, medical, you know, marijuana legalization states, more on the ballot here in November. So I believe that with psychedelics, what we're going to have, we're now anticipating that around 2021, we will have MDMA-assisted psychotherapy approved by the FDA for post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a lot of assumptions wrapped up in that, and you know I could be wrong, but that, that's currently what we're projecting. And it's a similar time frame for the work that's going to be done with psilocybin for end of life. So I think that roughly 2021, we start setting up these psychedelic clinics because it will not be able to be prescribed by just any physician. It will be only physicians that have been through special training by us and how to use it and therapists and psychologists that have been through training. So I think that we'll have maybe 10 years of the spread of psychedelic clinics to the point that we'll have um, thousands of them throughout the United States. And then people get used to this idea of psychedelic medicine. There's a place you go to it. And then their attitudes are going to be changing towards the whole idea of prohibition of everything, because by then we should have legalization of marijuana on a federal level. Canada should have legalized marijuana. They're going to be doing so next, next year. And then I think by 2035 or so, um, I, I anticipate that we'd have adult use would be legal for psychedelics throughout the United States and in many places of the world. Well, that's really cool. I, I hope it goes that way. Um, <laughs> I, I know it's, um, we're, we're coming up on your hard stop. I want to get one more question in and then we'll sure. wrap this up. So, so you, you, this is something that you refer to as the driver's license model. Uh, yeah, um, and, and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what you were just saying with these supervised clinics um, that can serve as a doorway to mainstream usage. Yeah, Ryan, I'm just impressed. <laughs> You're a very good listener. Um, so the driver's license model, the idea is that, um, you know, I woke up to psychedelics in 1971 and 72 after the backlash. Um, and so I'm acutely sensitive to not getting overconfident. And where could there be another backlash? You know, I woke up to MDMA in 1982 when it was both an underground psychedelic therapy tool, but also it was being sold in a recreational adult context under the name ecstasy. Right. So it was clear it was going to be doomed. So what we want to do is introduce the therapeutic use of uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in a manner that is um, careful and done at a pace that doesn't encourage a backlash. And the same is true for introducing rec you know, adult use outside of a medical context or outside of a legal context. Probably a lot of the people that are, um, I mean, outside of a religious freedom legal context. So a lot, a lot of the people are your listener is probably aware of ayahuasca yep. and you know, the, the Unia de Vegetal and the Santo Daime churches that are legal in the U S mm -hmm. uh, the native American church, which has half a million members that uses peyote in the United States. Um, so I think that the medicalization is going to move forward more widely, more quickly than religious freedom because religious mm -hmm. freedom is going to be, um, you know, if we believe that this idea that everybody has the right for their own personal spirituality 
it's it's kind of close to legalization, and there'll be a lot of resistance. So religious freedom will be limited to very um, small number of groups and where the psychedelics. But the idea of the driver's license model is a way to be careful about how we move from you know prohibition to medical use to personal freedom for adult use. And what what I'm basically saying, and now I mentioned, you know, that I've got three kids and I've only one that's still um, uh, in high school in their senior year, but all three of them, I've watched them go through getting a driver's license. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that they they can't just get a driver's license when they turn a certain age. They have to demonstrate that they can drive and they have to demonstrate with somebody else in the car that's watching them. And this other person often flunks people and says, you have to come back. And they have to drive for a certain number of hours with their parents in the car. And we have to sign all these sheets. And they have to go to special classes. And then they have this opportunity to drive where they could both hurt themselves and hurt others. But presumably because of the training they've got, they're more responsible. So I think that the way in which we should think about drugs beyond medicine is that they should be legal for those people that use them responsibly. But if somebody misbehaves on a drug, um, they should both be punished for that misbehavior, but they should also um, have it made more difficult to buy the drug. So, for example, for alcohol, you know, people who are drunk drivers, a lot of times they lose their driver's license, but they still drink and they still kill people driving without their license. So if there was a credit card that had a little strip that was like which drugs you were authorized to buy <laughs> and then you go to your little alcohol place and you stick in your credit card and says okay you're you're cleared to buy alcohol but if you've killed you know if you've had a drunk driving conviction uh, you shouldn't be able to drive to buy alcohol for a while all right so the same is true with psychedelics so the idea is you go into one of these psychedelic clinics and now keep in mind that there's going to be large numbers of people that are using mdma and other psychedelics for medicine There'll be others that are using it in this new system. So there'll be a fair amount of tax money collected. And so there'll be a subsidized experience. So when you go to get your driver's license, you don't have to pay to have the driver instructor sit in the car and see if you can drive. Right. So people go to a psychedelic clinic and they say, I'm interested in LSD or I'm interested in ayahuasca or I'm interested in this. And then they get a experience under supervision and they they understand what the drug can do. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a terrible, terrible panic reaction, or if they don't have an allergic reaction or any kind of, you know, it has to be really extreme, but they, they now know what the drugs do in that setting and they know how to let the emotions flow through them. Then they get a license and they can buy it on their own. So the driver's license model for me makes a lot of sense. It should be relatively easy to get, but also something that you could lose easily and easily right. well you have to really seriously misbehave i mean we don't want it you know too much as a tool of repression but we do want it you know if somebody um, is stripping and they strip off their clothes and run down the street screaming you know they, they should um, not be able to buy you know their next hit of lsd they should maybe go to one of these clinics and do mdma we find that mdma helps people who've had difficult lsd trips a lot Wow. So MDMA helps people integrate difficult other classic psychedelics okay. as well as traumatic experiences. But but the fundamental idea is to say that we will introduce psychedelics into our culture in a gradual way over several decades, over several generations, 
with the ultimate goal being to have a spiritualized population that isn't so easily manipulated by appeals to fear, appeals to us and them that we see so much in this current political you know, presidential election season. What we really need is not elites that are more open-minded, but we need it broad-based. Mm-hmm. The same you could say about income. You know, we don't need all the money to go to the top 1%. We need a broader sense of, you know, safety and comfort and health care. So we need to democratize psychedelic spirituality. Rick, this has been an, an incredible and fascinating <laughs> podcast. We, we, I don't feel like we've even scratched the surface. So you have an open invitation to come back anytime. We'd love to have you on, and you know we could talk more about psilocybin. We could talk about LSD more in depth. I didn't even get to ask you about nootropics, um, yeah. so I'd love to, to have more of that conversation. Well, I, I would very much like that, Ryan. But but what I'm thinking is maybe um, once you've posted this, see what kind of questions people have, and let's let that simmer for a while, and then we can do one again with what stuff people are most interested in hearing about. A- absolutely, uh, Rick. Where can people find more of you? Um, well, just or your uh, research. Well, at maps.org. Okay. So, so just go to maps.org. Uh, okay. And then if they want to contact me, um, rick at maps.org. I have somebody that helps me deal with the email, so we try to respond to everything. And, okay. um, you know, th- there's a couple papers I would recommend that they read. The Good Friday Experiment follow-up was um, – so if they go to the staff page on the MAPS website, under my bio, there's a couple links Okay. to the Good Friday Experiment a follow-up to a project we did with uh, Timothy Leary's Concord Prison Experiment and my Mm -hmm. senior thesis, my dissertation at the Kennedy School. So there's a bunch more they could read there. Okay. We'll link to all that in the show notes. So if you guys listening, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to uh, see the video version of this. Click on all the links to take you right to these things. Rick, can I press you for for three tips? Three tips to, to help our listeners live optimal. Uh, they don't have to be on psychedelics or MDMA. And just if you could impart three pieces of wisdom, uh, pretend like we are your fourth daughter. What would you tell us? <laughs> huh. um, well, I would say that um, keep in mind that the things you will most likely regret the most at the end of your life are the things that you didn't do rather than things that you did do. So take courage when there's something that you're thinking about doing and, and you just get scared, you know, take the plunge and, and try to do it. Um, the other thing that I learned from my Ibogaine experience um, is to try to separate out self-criticism from self-hatred. And, you know, many of us are perfectionists. We're really hard on ourselves. And the solution is not to be less hard on ourselves. I mean, we need to be absolute perfectionists, but we need to recognize that we'll never achieve that. Mm -hmm. And so to be compassionate about our failings. But I think if you can separate out that self-hatred from the perfectionism. That's deep. I like that one. Yeah, it's it's important because I feel that the key for me, you know, I like to describe myself as a fuck up that just keeps on trying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I make an innumerable number of mistakes, but I try to learn from them. And if the mistakes that you make are so painful, like because you think you should be better, then you're not going to be looking for these mistakes. So I'm constantly looking for mistakes, but it's not to punish myself. But I used to do more of that. And the I began experience for me really helped make that separation. 
And then I guess the third thing is a lot of times to give what you want to get. So it's good in romantic relationships and others too that, you know, if you want somebody to love you, if you love them, you know, that might encourage them to do it, that, that you don't need all these things to come from others. You can generate it yourself and just give it. And then, and whether it's reciprocated or not, it feels better to be loving. It feels better to be giving. And you can, you can just do that on your own. And, um, you know, if, if it's reciprocated, you know, you need that. We all need that as well, but it doesn't have to be. So I'd say as a general, when you're in a stuck place, think about giving what you want to get. Beautiful. Rick, I can't thank you enough for, for hanging out with us. This has been an awesome podcast. Um, I, I realize you have to go. So thank you for your time. And um, for you guys listening, thanks for tuning in. Go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the video version of this. Click on the links and resources. Uh, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the show. Share this with anybody you know who will enjoy the subject matter that we talked about today or benefit from the things that we talked about. And thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you guys next Thursday. Great. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this special episode with Rick Doblin. Um, like Rick said right here as we came up on the end, um, in regards to having Rick back on the show, we will certainly have Rick back on the show Um, but like he said, your questions will help us guide that show and and shape that show. So if you want more from Rick, if you have a question for Rick, send me an email to Ryan, R-Y-A-N at naturalstacks.com, Ryan at naturalstacks.com. And I will compose and compile those questions that you guys, the listeners have for Rick. We'll get them back on the show. We'll ask him your questions and we'll talk to you guys next Thursday. Thanks for listening.